0: welcome back everybody it's lisa and
1: danielle and we have a very special guest here with us today Uh, we have got detective heidi chance with us Um, we are super excited we have been talking about this interview, um, on our past episodes, this last few Mm -hmm. weeks and, um, just the impact that she has had on the community and really with us since we met with her and, um, we're just super excited to have her with us today. So Heidi, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to meet with us. Thank Um, you. yeah. Yeah. We would love if you could share with us your, uh, your past and what you're doing now. Um, and
2: yeah, share it with the listeners. So um, I am a retired detective from Phoenix Police Department. Um, I actually spent 25 years with Phoenix Police Department, 23 of which I was a sworn officer. Um, I actually started at 18 years old working for Phoenix Police Department. Wow. Um, and then I turned 21 in the academy. Um, and basically, I spent most of my career in the human trafficking unit. Um, after my time in patrol, I was in Maryvale Precinct in West Phoenix. And I spent um, some time doing patrol and then school resource officer, community action officer. And then I decided to move to uh, the human trafficking unit, which was called Vice back then. And it's an undercover unit. And I spent um, the whole rest of my career there, almost 14 years uh, working undercover and investigating human trafficking. So I am very happy to share all that I know um, as far as after that, um, I went on to become a special agent with Arizona department of gaming. And then I just recently got recruited away from gaming to work for the Arizona attorney general's office as a special agent, um, investigating human trafficking again. So I'm happy to be, uh, the investigator for the state.
1: Gosh, Amazing. it's such an, Im- yeah, it is such an impactful thing, um, Lisa and I have kind of shared since we first spoke with you with really everyone that we've encountered. I feel like um, mm-hmm. just what that initial conversation meant to us. I, I mean, I, I feel like for the most part, people's you know people understand what they understand about this work, and um, there's still so many gray areas to us, right? And both of our husbands are in law enforcement, and there's still so many things I feel like we don't know. And um, so we really lean on, I think, people like you to educate us and educate the community to uh, all things. Uh, we've got, I've got young kids and um, two, are, two are females and one is a little guy. And uh, I certainly know that I, I look at things very differently than I would have perhaps when I was growing up. Uh, I know that I was a kid running the streets, right. Mm -hmm. And that was normal. And I don't think that it's so normal nowadays. And there's a lot of things that we have to be looking at to, uh, protect the, the kiddos around us and, um, Mm -hmm. not just kiddos. I think that it's happening to uh, adults. I I mean, I don't know. You can, you can kind of answer that for
2: us. I don't know the age group that this is happening in. Yeah, it absolutely can be anyone, um, what it is is human trafficking is um, it's actually a business. It's the supply and demand. So if you think about it in simplest terms, you have traffickers, pimps, one and the same. I don't know where the confusion's coming on social media. People are mm-hmm. thinking that's two different individuals. The trafficker is a pimp, a pimp is a trafficker. It's just two names for the same person um, exploiting the vulnerabilities of others. So they are supplying the victims. The vulnerable vulnerable people for the demand, and the demand are the individuals who are um, purchasing other people for sex, and so those individuals happen to be predominantly men. I haven't had any experience in my career, nor have I had a colleague tell me a instance where they had an investigation involving a female sex buyer. Um, those are predominantly men, and they're the ones creating the demand for this issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Where do you think this all starts? Like if you had to rewind all of this, what would be the start of this issue?
2: Um, well, a lot of it is on both the sides of the, of the two um, parts of this. For the demand, I think that's being created by pornography. And I think that um, men who watch pornography on a regular basis and they, um, you know, get excited and turned on sexually about pornography... That, that eventually they go to act on that. And when they act on that, they either go to a known area for prostitution on you know on the streets, or they go to online sources such as platforms like OnlyFans, Patreon, those kind of platforms, or they go to prostitution websites and actually go purchase a physical person for the purpose of sexual gratification. And I think all of that originates from um, the, the pornography that they're, um, subjecting themselves to and, or grew up with, or, um, you know, learned behavior in, you know, maybe an older brother or an uncle or a mom's boyfriend or whoever introduced them to pornography or even friends at school. Um, and so that's what's so dangerous about porn being available, readily available to anyone. Um, and then on the other side of it, as far as traffickers, um, I have this really interesting, um, you know, conclusion I've come to in my experience that I believe traffickers, pimps, it's a generational learned behavior. I have had several investigations where I've arrested traffickers' mothers, uh, relatives mm-hmm. for being involved in destroying evidence or intimidating witnesses, trying to prevent people to show up from co- for court against their, um, you know, their relative that's in trouble, and I think that a lot of times traffickers kind of learn to be pimps from uncles or older brothers or some individual in their life. Um, not that all traffickers are males, by the way. There are females that were originally victims of trafficking and then learned how to uh, run a trafficking ring themselves and then they become the trafficker. But what I've noticed is a lot of generational um traffickers where they have some relative um in their history. So I think that's definitely the two dynamics there as far as where this is starting.
1: Mm-hmm. So I have a mm-hmm. question about that. So if um you know that seems like a weird dynamic, not a weird dynamic, but a um more sensitive one, if the female who was trafficked then becomes the trafficker, how in in your line of work then is that looked at? Because it's almost as if it's, you know, your uh you're almost molding to a way of life that you didn't know necessarily was right or wrong. Like how is that looked
2: at in your line of work for that female? Well, <clears throat> you, it, it's definitely a case by case thing. Cause I have had several instances where, you know, adult females are committing crimes. They're doing sexual acts with juveniles. They are the traffickers themselves and they actually need to be held accountable for their crimes, mm-hmm. whether they you know, a lot of this is they obviously probably experienced it as a victim themselves, but all of this is still a choice. And if they choose to move into this role and then start victimizing other victims, then they are choosing to be held accountable for what they're doing in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Obviously we have evolved in our response to prostitution. When I first started In 2007-ish, doing undercover shadows, temporary assignments with the vice unit, we were focusing in on arresting sex buyers here and there. But predominantly every day they would show up to work and they would go out to 27th Avenue or Van Buren or the street prostitution area and make arrests of prostitutes. And there was no asking any questions of getting them out of the life. There was no offering them assistance. It was just misdemeanor arrests all day long. Mm -hmm. We've definitely evolved away from doing that. We still at some point do have to make an arrest Mm -hmm. um, because believe it or not, on those known areas for prostitution, there are residential homes, there are businesses, there are churches, there are schools, and there are people who don't want to have individuals having sex in a vehicle outside their daughter's bedroom window Mm -hmm. or condoms thrown in their front yard. And so we do have to make an arrest, but we are... We have evolved and we are asking the question we never asked before. And we're asking, um, you know, these individuals who we're making contact with based on the crime they're committing, we're asking them, hey, we have a victim advocate right here. What can we do to help you get out of this situation you're in? And if they take us up on the offer, obviously, we're not going to charge them with a crime. And we're going to try and offer assistance more than once, but at some point we have to draw the line in the sand. And they keep choosing to go back to this situation when we've mm-hmm. offered them help. And so that is where we're at now, as far as our response. And and I think we're doing much better than we were before. There's mm-hmm. lots more that we can do, but we are absolutely going to have to make um, those decisions case by case. But I know mm-hmm. what you're saying, as far as individuals who like juveniles. Juveniles sometimes they not only participate in sex acts with men for money, and of course we're not charging them with that crime, but they may be selling drugs for the trafficker. They may be forced to rob people, like right. lure these men into a hotel room. And then the pimp comes in with a gun and, you know, mm-hmm. they participated in that robbery uh, yeah. by getting the person up there in the hotel room for the pimp to come in. So mm-hmm. um, holding them accountable for those things. Those are definitely um, things that I think are being more seen as a causation of the trafficking and not, Um, you know, a direct choice that that victim chose to participate in that this total totality of the circumstances, as far as how they found themselves committing those crimes are being taken into consideration where they weren't before. So definitely we Mm -hmm. are recognizing that.
0: Wow.
1: So when, when this type of incident happens, like uh, someone is trafficked, what are the odds that
2: they are found safe? Well, I mean, it's, I don't know who put it out there, but I think if you Google the life expectancy of a prostitute is seven years, and that is, um, you know, based on drugs, that's based on the violent incidents that they endure as far as the, you know, beatings, Um, and then just overall being in these awful areas that are not safe for your, you know, normal people to be walking around at two in the morning. There are other criminals out there besides uh, traffickers and their victims. So um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of risk. It is extremely dangerous to participate in that. And, um, you know, getting out is really hard. Um, Getting out involves a whole process of, you know, placement, uh, services, resources. And we have some of those things in place. Like we have... Um, the Dream Center or other like New Life Shelter, Sojourner Center, Catholic Social Services, Jewish Family Services. We have placement, but some of those placements can only handle victims who are, you know, not on drugs, who aren't pregnant, who don't have kids already, who aren't attached to a pet, you know, and those placements are for predominantly female. We don't have probably enough services for lgbtq plus transgender or boys or male adults
0: Mm
2: -hmm. so we definitely are lacking in those kind of things and then along with the placement the whole recovery process getting them services getting them an id getting them a job helping them with their stds helping them get off the drugs Mm -hmm. uh, helping them with their children who may be in the process of being taken away from them from dcs um you know, helping them with their brand tattoo that the trafficker may have put on them. There are organizations like Soul Survivor Inc. who actually will either do like the laser treatment removal, or will do a tattoo over that tattoo to hide it, and and okay. you know help them with all of that because that's really like a daily reminder in your face. And sometimes sure. that tattoo is on your face of what you've been through and what um, you know happened to you. So, lots and lots of uh, work to still do. <laughs> Gosh, are there any,
1: I know, are there any cases that you have right now that are um, sort of like mind blowing that are just um, something not you don't have to share details, obviously, but just like um, something that
2: you can share with us that you've got going on actively? Yeah, so I have a bunch of cases that um, that I completed that I can definitely talk about. But I have, you know, bits of my observation of this issue going on in these cases. Number one, just because we put these guys in prison or in jail awaiting trial, they have not stopped their prostitution activities. They are able to conduct their prostitution activities from jail. So how is that happening? Well, I had a really good relationship with jail intelligence and they are you know, really, really bogged down with having to monitor not only jail calls, video visits, the mail, but now they have tablets at the jail. And, um, you know, they swear that they don't have the Internet. I don't know. All I know is that um, these are hardened criminals. And if kids can figure out how to bypass parental controls on a phone, I'm pretty sure criminals in prison who have nothing else to do all day long can figure out how to get on the Internet Mm -hmm. and continue their business. And I know they're continuing their business because I've had instances where I've actually charged, um, you know, house of prostitution on a person in jail still from jail, managing prostitutes and having them work for them and send them money, put it on their books, all those things. So, um, that's one observation. And then another observation, (laughs) this is really bad. I've had four traffickers now that I put in prison because I've been doing this so long, years ago, they got out and they went right back to prostituting again. And then we've had to re arrest them, redo new investigations, their new victims and put them back in prison again. So there's some kind of really bad, um, no, no reforming them, no fixing them in prison. That's not working. It's not doing anything. Right. Um, so we're so going back out to it.
1: Right. But I mean, if we like, we all know addiction, right? So like sex is an addiction and mm-hmm. we know that we can't shut off drugs like we want to. So I'm pretty sure we can't just shut off the sex drive like we want to in some of these these men that are doing this and they're super addicted to the pornography, like you stated earlier. So yeah. what choice, what choices do we have? Like, what is there, what path can be taken in order to make ref- like
0: to
2: have reform on this? Like, what do we do next? Yeah. What is there? But there's um, there's bills that are in the process or being introduced to, especially if you're trafficking a minor, it'd be a lifetime sentence. You're not going to get out and do this again to anyone else. Um, And then it's going to be a matter of making sure they're not doing it or continuing to do it from inside jail. Mm -hmm. So um, it is really, really interesting what we're going to have, you know, if that gets passed, we're going to have a, you know, really good time celebration on being able to put these traffickers away for the rest of their life, but there's going to have to be other things put in place so that they don't continue to traffic from in custody.
1: Do you find that the do you find that most of these like women and children are brought into this world through the internet right now, or are they brought in based on um, you know having been walking down the street? Yeah, Mm -hmm. circumstances like Mm -hmm. being at the mall alone with friends or not knowing what to look for, right? Mm
2: yeah, so there's several ways that a vulnerable person gets involved in trafficking, and <clears throat> um, basically, it is a trafficker doesn't have a job despite what they might say. They might say they clean carpets or you know Uber or something. They don't have a job. Their only job all day long is to manage the victims they have and seek out new ones and so whether they do that in person in public places like the mall or bus stops or parties or concerts, convenience stores, or if they can use the internet, they're going to use whichever's easiest. And right now the internet offers the easiest option for me to copy and paste a message to hundreds of profiles a day on different social media platforms. And, you know, there's new ones all the time popping up. And if I can spread out my message, Um, on all these different platforms, maybe law enforcement won't be on discord yet, or maybe law enforcement won't be as heavily on Snapchat or Instagram, those kind of things. So if I, and I know that they're doing this because I've done search warrants for their social media profiles and I've seen the copied and pasted message, the same one they sent me as an undercover trying to recruit and groom me to all these other profiles, all female. And the other dynamic here is they aren't concerned with you being local either. They're sending these messages all over. It doesn't matter, um, especially if you have a juvenile that has an open profile, they're putting out there on their posts that they're unhappy with their family or mad at their parents or not wanting to go to school anymore. So if they're posting things like that, these guys are seeing those posts and then they see that person as a person to target and they sure. will um, you know, slide into their private messages And engage in conversations with them, and encourage them to, um, you know, join their team or leave their situation and come with me. And I'm going to promise you all these things: this better life. I'm going to take you traveling. We're going to get your hair done, your nails done. Uh,
0: Mm -hmm. You want to go
2: to Las Vegas? Let's go right now. I'll come pick you up. Um, Do you want to be a model?
0: You hear about that one all Mm the time. We want to take pictures of you. Europe. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. So it's all um, part of the luring. Um, and the grooming uh, that traffickers can do anonymously almost with multiple people a day. yeah. And that's where the internet is really um, not helpful in this situation.
0: Sure. It goes way past what everybody thinks about the basics of privacy or putting um, blocks and certain things on their kid's phone. There's so many things to get around that. It's not just location services. It's not just those aren't enough. Right. Stop them from finding or getting in touch with these people.
2: Yeah. So the national average age of entry into sex trafficking is 13 years old. And it used to be 15 when I first started this. So and it's really getting closer and closer to 11, 12. So these conversations, you know, and actions like you mentioned, the parental controls, the, you know, shutting off location services, the apps, but the conversations need to happen earlier than you would think also. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why, um, you know, I'm working on authoring a guide for parents right now to Mm -hmm. help because I keep saying, Hey, parents have these conversations, but I haven't really said how to have those conversations. And then I also want to include in this guide, you know, in the unfortunate instance that you do have a situation where you have someone sending inappropriate images to your child or trying to, have them send images and those kind of things. How do you respond to that as a parent? How do you involve law enforcement? What does that look like? Um, How do you capture evidence for the police? Those kind of things. So I'm including all of that in my guide um, because I want uh, parents to be super informed, especially if that kind of thing does happen, because unfortunately um, you know, it is happening on a daily to um, kids all over the United States and all over the world. And uh, I don't know that there's anything out there right now that tells parents what to do and how to respond to that.
0: Sure. Yeah. How would you know how to approach that? That's one of those conversations you don't think about having to do. And that's terrible.
1: Yeah. We live in a I think we live in a frightening time where, um, you know, we kind of teeter on we're overly protective or we're the extreme opposite. And we're like, oh, that would never happen to us. That would never happen here. It would never happen to us. And, um, you know, it's really frightening. And in fact, Lisa and I were talking to someone just recently and and I I, I literally text her and I text her, being naive is dangerous.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it, yeah. it really just, it's one of those like instincts in me to just think like, You can't think that it's never going to happen to you because it's the second you turn off that hypervigilance that something happens. And, you know, it's it's frightening to think that there's so many parents that that don't necessarily understand the dangers of the phone or they don't understand the dangers of the computer that the kids are playing on um, every day, even their 15 year old that's doing homework in the kitchen. Uh, We were. Googling some off the wall, not Googling, but on Amazon, some off the wall stuff last night. And it's shocking the things that come up via the internet just to so- anyone. <clears throat> to anyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm actually more in shock right now that there are not more safeguards to the men doing this behind jail, like in jail, and that they're still yeah. able to function fully doing what they're doing in jail.
2: And Mm -hmm. they haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, that's been a battle for me because the the case that I'm specifically mentioning uh, is a resolved case, so I can talk fully about it. Um, This pimp is in custody for the next 108 years. And he's a pimp. Both dynamics exist with this case. I arrested him in 2007 or 2014 for pimping out a 16-year-old. And back then... The law was different where we would have had to prove he knew she was 16 and we were working on that case trying to get that proof but she disappeared she went back to prostitution she left arizona she turned 18 uncooperative and if i don't have a victim that can testify in front of a jury it's sad to say but i really don't have an investigation anymore and so unfortunately that's where that was left that 2014 case fast forward to 2019 He's pimping out another 16-year-old, and the law changed in 2016, and we don't have to prove you knew how old she was. So she testified that she told him she was 19. He probably knew she was younger. I can't prove it. I don't have to. Anyway, bottom line is, is that girl took five months after we rescued her to come forward and tell us anything about him actually pimping her out. We knew, but we have to hear it from her. So I started this investigation five months late, and I only got there because of a survivor victim advocate that was working with her that got her to come forward. And I was able to put this entire case together, find evidence. She had, you know, some phones that I didn't even put two and two together. The last time I contacted her in 2017, I did take her phone because her mom said, I don't know who gave it to her, impound this because I don't want it here. And I had the phone, and that phone had evidence on it for the pertinent case in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the bottom line is, is she testified against him and he was found guilty on all 11 counts and submitted, uh, and, and was put in jail in 20, uh, 2021, 2020, end of 2020, beginning of 21 for that 108 year sentence. But while I was investigating, um, her, I also was trying to do what we're doing now is going after these traffickers financially and looking at money laundering, illegal enterprise felonies. And so listening to the jail calls and having that re- relationship with jail mm-hmm. intelligence, I heard him directing three other adult females to go prostitute out of a house right near 27th Avenue in Northern. And we ended up sending in undercovers and doing a house of prostitution investigation. And he was managing all of that from in custody. Um, while I'm still also trying to do the juvenile case. So the money laundering was a part of the 11 counts and he was found guilty on that. Plus having that victim come testify on her 18th birthday against him, you know, really nailed the nail in the coffin for him. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it it took a lot. And if she hadn't showed up, luckily we have the other felonies we are going after him. for. because technically everything that you're doing Uh, exploiting victims and and earning illegal money from prostitution is all money laundering illegal enterprise. So those other felonies are, you know, the perfect thing for Mm. us to do. And so trying to inspire law enforcement based off of my own experiences is also something that I'm doing as far as training law enforcement, getting them to want to do these cases, because these cases are really hard. I mean, I joke with homicide detectives, their victim is dead right there on the ground. They're not going anywhere. Our victims disappear, they go back to prostitution, they commit other crimes, they are no longer cooperative, then they change their mind. And so it's really hard to even, as an officer and a detective, to want to even do these cases because it's a lot of work. Um, Mm -hmm. On top of trying to find the evidence, but just dealing with the victim alone and getting them to a stable place um, is is really difficult. And we were doing that by ourselves before we got victim advocates. so, you know, doing our job, getting calls from patrol, getting calls from silent witness, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, patrol, mm-hmm. all of this, plus trying to manage victims, um, you know, was really, really hard. And now at least we have victim advocates to help us with that. But mm-hmm. it is really, really hard to do these cases. So um, inspiring law enforcement through training that I've got going on is also something I am working on as well. Yeah. I, so. I admire
1: that. I oh, I mean, yeah. the reality is, I, I mean, maybe you can debunk this. I might be wrong. The reality is there's not too, too many women sitting in law enforcement usually. Right. So we're, you're, you're kind of dealing with like men having to understand the urgency and the need and the, and they're, they're not, my husband's going to kill me for this. They're not quite <laughs> wired the same way we are to the understanding of this. Like, you know, I I could sit and have this conversation with him in his law enforcement mind after all of these years. And um, he may still not have the same, like, drive and passion I might have for this to be like, you just have to do this, right? So I can understand your, your desire to be like, we need to break into every department to get them to understand how to deal with these cases and want to deal with these cases because they can't just be left alone.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, these cases are messy. I mean, you've got victims that go back to prostitution. And for sure, if the defense finds out about that, they're going to bring that up in the trial and you're going to have to explain why that happened. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's messy, but mm-hmm. they are definitely worth it. Um, especially mm-hmm. you know, to get these pants taken out because yeah. they're they're going right back out to it. God, I admire the work you're doing so much. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: there's so much to that. There's so so much. Mm-hmm.
1: Where? How often are these? How often are people being moved
2: interstate, like
1: from state to state? I guess.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about numbers, but almost all of my cases um traffickers have moved their victims and the reason for that is part of this entire dynamic of the control um is isolating them from family members and friends burning bridges you know not letting them talk to family and friends where the family and friends think you know they don't care about them anymore but really if they're not allowed to they get beat up over it they get their phone taken away all this thing all these things but the isolation is very real like moving transient uh, from hotel to hotel, city to city, state to state. Obviously, they're doing that for a reason. One, because they don't want to get caught by the police because it's really hard for us to find them. And by the time we get wind of them, they're you know already moved on to the next city or the next state. Mm-hmm. And once they come back, then we can deal with them when they come back. Or you know, if we've got a victim currently here, we can pursue them. But then, uh, two, they don't want their victims to get to know somebody. Like, let's say we're at the hotel hanging out and I, the pants, see my victim over there talking to the janitor and I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if that normal person's going to tell my victim to leave me. I don't want that. Time to leave. Let's back up and go. So the isolation and keeping them very on the move and completely dependent on that trafficker is part of all of this. So... Mm -hmm. The probability that a victim's been trafficked out of state is pretty high. Wow! Yeah.
1: I know. Last time we spoke, you kind of talked about, and I, because I want you to kind of paint this picture for people. Um, you talked about the type of person that these traffickers can be, and you know, we were a little bit, Lisa and I, even um, being a little bit more aware. I think of this uh, <clears throat> this topic. We were, I think, in shock. Um, So you had talked about where these men go and where they frequent and who they could potentially be and what they look like, Um, because it's not always the run of the mill scumbag, right? Like it's right. uh, So who are these
2: men that people would be looking at?
0: So or women um, or women,
2: right? (laughs) Well, yeah. And that's just it. So as far as um, sex buyers, because they're also part of this, they're actually Mm -hmm. the whole reason this thing exists because they're demanding the the ability to purchase people for sex. Um, They could be anyone. They could be a police officer, I've arrested cops before, um, doctors, nurses, medical professionals, construction workers, day laborers, non-US citizens, businessmen, fathers, husbands. I mean, I've had as an undercover, thousands of men take their wedding ring off, put it in the cup holder, and then solicit sex from me. Um, so that, that's the demographic of the buyers. As far as the traffickers, um, like I said, you, I feel like it's it's generational and it is an individual who's learning this either from being a victim and moving into that trafficking position or being in a household where that's an accepted behavior and some relative or the whole family financially benefits off of this uh, behavior. So that is, that is probably the demographic that I would say um, is. And and the thing is, is these traffickers are not just one race, not just male. Like I said, they could be female Mm -hmm. and not just one age. um, It could be any age. um, And we've had juvenile pimps, you know, so, um, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: This is crazy. Where do you find that there's like a cover story that's more similar than another for these like pimps like is there is there something that they utilize more often than other like other cover stories as to what their job is I know you said they don't have a job but like yeah if they're selling themselves as something what would that be?
2: Uh aspiring rapper really uh, a lot of them okay. have YouTube channels and um, you know, they're influencers or they try to act like they're rappers and they have their following. And, you know, it's, it's really good evidence because they say to me in front of, um, you know, the camera in the interview room, I'm not a pimp, but then here they are rapping about being a pimp and, you know, uh, doing derogatory things with women and their little videos and all kinds of things. So um, yeah, aspiring rapper. I've had wow. a lot of them. interesting. It makes sense. Expecting- it makes complete <laughs> sense
0: because, yeah. Oh, do you want to be in my video? Yeah. Do you want to be, you know, yeah. I get it. I could see exactly how that would lure.
1: I was expecting like a Uber driver.
0: Oh,
2: like right. There. Yes.
1: Yeah. Obviously, I only yeah.
2: really had one kind of claim that, but I think they know that law enforcement has a relationship with Lyft and Uber. Um, there's the whole investigation section. I've actually toured the Uber um, facility, downtown Phoenix. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Um, And they definitely have, you know, the ability to track all kinds of things. So um, that would be too much, too much evidence for the police, I think. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because the whole thing about stranger danger, you know, Mm -hmm. it's that it's. So that little phrase is now this giant. It encompasses so much now. It encompasses. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you know, men, women, the internet, you know, YouTube, you know, little things. I mean, just stuff you would never know. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't look the same,
2: you know? No. Yeah. And I've also had a couple with um, recording studios, but they weren't really recording studios. Um, There's a stripper pole and a stage. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: I could never do what you do. I... Well, and I, you know, and I say that because I, I, uh, I want so badly to see everyone for what they still, the life they still have left in them. Right. And, and I, um, I think I might've shared this with you before I, I work with, uh, drug addicts and, and stuff like that. So to me, it's almost that same dynamic of like, I know you want the help, but then you go right back to what you were doing before. And so when you want that help again, come back to me and come, you know, but you've got to want it just like I want it for you. Uh Except, you know, well, I guess they do. They do disappear, right? They disappear. But it's, it's, someone isn't taking them from me. (laughs) They're not being taken. And, but then there's drugs and this, and it's combined and, it's such a scary world out there for these people. And so now I feel like when you walk the streets of downtown Phoenix and you see what a problem all of this is together, you, you're you looking at the women, especially down there, wondering, are they part of this? And how do you get them out of this? And how do you help them? And are they part of the problem? And, you know, there's like such a, there's like such a thing and, and where is their family and does their family know what's going on? Like I have this like big, huge question mark now (laughs) about all of this. And it's, it's just a frightening world, I think. And, Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I commend you for being such a, a big part of this because I don't know that many people could, I couldn't, um, do Mm -hmm. what you do exactly.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I think, I think your point though, is that you work with people who are doing things to themselves. Yes. And I'm talking about people who are doing things to other people. Yes. And those people have no, no, there is no excuse. And so that's why I, I have zero remorse for feeling that they need to go to prison forever. (laughs) Yeah. Because they are doing things to other people. And then when we've given them an opportunity to change their behavior in prison, they come out and they do it again. Yeah, I have have a huge problem with that. Um, Mm -hmm. So that is definitely a little bit of a difference. There there is um, almost no rehabilitating their behavior. If they can't learn it in prison, then they deserve to go back.
0: There must be a lot of drugs must play a huge, huge part in what you do as well, because I imagine they use drugs to sedate some of these women sometimes if they're not cooperative or to even get them from point A to point B. I imagine that's a big part of your role too. Like there's almost like a, between the drug world and the sex trafficking, it's got to go hand in hand.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's sometimes part of the control over them is to build up an addiction where they can Mm -hmm. control them through that addiction. So I have um, a a case that um, literally in the Search warrant evidence of the conversations on the social media platform with the trafficker. Each of these three victims, Daddy, can I have a pill? And they're talking about the fentanyl pills. Do the state first. And then this one, Daddy, can I have a pill? Do the state first. Daddy, can I have a pill? Do the state first. So it's all controlled through that means for that particular trafficker. Although, as an undercover, I have had my own daddies where I've had pimps that have tried to recruit and groom me. And I've been told. That I'm not allowed to use drugs because they don't want to compete with the drug to control me. So it can be seen both ways, but definitely drugs are involved, and definitely mm-hmm. those victims also participated in sales of drugs for the trafficker. Right,
0: right. Wow. Gosh, and then you, and then you've got to like figure out if they are, like you said, case by case, if they are being forced to do this for their, you know their safety or their life or their family's lives or whatever excuse they give them, or if they now are a willing participant
2: in Helping them. Yeah. I mean, the way to kind of draw the line is um, obviously adults make choices and juveniles, you know, they don't, they don't, their brains aren't fully developed yet. And I think that we can err on the side of, um, you know, they were influenced or encouraged, especially uh, when I conduct interviews with victims, I ask them, have you ever done anything like this before? And if they say no, then everything that they learned, everything that happened to them is as a result of this trafficker. Mm hmm that's pretty easy to draw the line for that particular victim that, you know, that have they not ever met this person, their life would not be on this path. They would not have these, you know, uh, sales of drugs in their past history, uh, as a juvenile. And, and, you know, therefore those crimes we should revisit and, you know, exonerate them from those things. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's
1: a few big takeaways that you would like, um, our listeners to really walk away with today from this with you? um, What would those be? And um, I know you've got some really special things coming up uh, as far as um, some courses that you do. Uh, There's an ebook that you've got coming out. um, So I'd love if you could share those things with our listeners. I know that it's going to be something that Lisa and I uh, deep dive into. So, Mm -hmm. um, and we'd really love to just continue sharing uh, sharing what you've got for the community. So, um, yeah, if you could just give our listeners those few big, big items to walk away with today, that would be wonderful.
2: Yeah. So, um, I know that you had mentioned a big case that I, I should have talked about before now, but mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about it now. Um, yeah. <clears throat> this case is resolved. It, it went to trial in 2015 and it really is a testament to many things. Um, It is why I called my course, The Power of Awareness, because when I first started investigating these types of cases, I'd have pimps doing the same thing they're doing now, you know, two juveniles, but they were only getting plea offers for nine, 10 years. And then fast forward to now we've got traffickers, like I just said, being put in prison for hundreds of years. And so that is only happening because of the power of awareness, because of prosecutors learning that this is a very serious crime and to do a better job in prosecuting it. Judges understanding the reason why, you know, each of these counts hold this many years and then not making them be, okay, well, let's just put that all together in the first 10 years. Actually make it be on top of each other. 10 years for this one, 10 years for that one, 10 years for that one. And then uh, juries. So uh, in your audience, if there's someone listening that's ever served as a juror, Um, You know, I really want my message to be out there so that juries can understand the dynamics of human trafficking, because there may be a time when you're called to serve and I'm describing to you that this victim was walking freely down the side of the road with a phone in their hand, but they're trapped. They're really not free to leave. And understanding that as a juror and wrapping their head around, wait a minute, I thought victims had to be locked in a, you know, bedroom somewhere or handcuffed to a bed to be a victim. And really, that's not what we're talking about here. And all the dynamics that go along with that. And I think that's like the biggest takeaway is if you are called to be a juror, um, you know, understand it is definitely a big deal to put someone in prison for the rest of their life. But also, it's it's a big deal for a victim to live with what happened to them for the rest of their life. And it's your job Mm -hmm. to make the right choice here and, um, you know, really understand the entire crime and what belongs or what all goes along with the crime. Um, so that, that's one big takeaway as far as that goes. And, <clears throat> you know, as far as victims themselves, um, that big case that I was alluding to, that had seven victims. It was familial trafficking, two juveniles. Familial trafficking basically means um, the victim knew their trafficker. And a lot of people associate that with a relative, someone they're related to, mm-hmm. father, uncle, mother. But it doesn't always have to be. It could also be someone you're in a romantic relationship with. Um, so, this was an example of true familial trafficking where it was an uncle trafficking his 13 year old niece. Um, but all that to say, uh, when she was 16, she notified law enforcement of what was going on and we started our case. But the problem with that investigation is, is it took five years to go to trial. And luckily, we were able to have all seven victims come testify five years later. And luckily, um, we had really good witnesses testify about the dynamics of trafficking. And luckily we had a lot of evidence because the trafficker is really the most evil person I've ever met, um, was sentenced to 493.5 years. So that is a record for the United States. Wow. That is what I'm talking about as far as the power of awareness. Be sh- bullshit, please. For nine, 10 years to almost 500 years. That's where we're at right. now. And I want to, maintain that momentum. I want to keep that going. Um, so that's why I'm involved with what I'm doing on the side of all of my um, law enforcement um, duties. I have my own business, com is my website. And yes, I do have a course called The Power of Awareness where I really dive into in great detail um, you know, victims and how they get into this situation, sex buyers and what happens with them, Obviously, traffickers and how they recruit and groom victims, but I also cover kind of the evolution of myself and my understanding of this issue, and then law enforcement's response and how that's evolved, and then I do a whole section on how you can get involved in trafficking without being a vigilante and, you know, filming your own TikToks of conversing with child predators and then calling the police later. That is not okay, Mm -hmm. and people are doing that all the time to be Instagram or are TikTok famous and that is messing up our evidence that is entrapment that is making it harder for undercovers to do their job all kinds of snowball results to that and i hope that that gets put to stop uh, right now Um, but definitely there's things that you can do to get involved in this fight and and you know people are very inspired right now by movies like the sound of freedom that is a great movie it's got everyone thinking about human trafficking It is a depiction of international trafficking though. For Mm -hmm. a great example of domestic sex trafficking happening here, I encourage you to watch the movie that Frontline PBS filmed. It's called Sex Trafficking in America. It was Mm -hmm. actually done on our unit. They filmed us for three years. Yes, I'm tooting my own horn, I was in that movie, but it also will show you some of these undercover operations that I'm talking about that we do the right way proactively to go after traffickers and buyers. And mm-hmm. it really does go through a story of a juvenile who was lured away and went with these traffickers and was sold from one to the other. And, you know, her story is what it really is about and and her recovery and all of that she went through and, um, you know, the results of her getting justice against those three traffickers. So um, anyway, with all that, yes, I do have the course that's available on my website, I have my um, Instagram. Um, unfortunately, when I went to apply for the Instagram, I had to put the underscore in between each word. So it's A underscore chance underscore for underscore awareness. And I post a lot about, you know, new legislation coming out, um, you know, uh, articles all day long, every day of arrests and people who are doing awful things. And and I try to be very active on there as well as LinkedIn under my name, Heidi Chance. just to super there. And, you know, I'm responsive to people who message me on both of those platforms. If you have a particular situation going on um, or, um, you know, have a question. And then, um, yes, coming out in April, uh, April 15th, I'm launching my parents guide. Like I said, I keep telling you parents to have these conversations, but I don't tell you how to have the conversations or what to include in the conversations. And then obviously I want you to know What to do if there's an unfortunate circumstance that you may have to involve law enforcement, um, how to collect evidence, how to not engage with these people, how to not, you know, accidentally log out of the platform, and then we lost the whole conversation, those kind of things. So Mm -hmm. very important, I think, and I don't think there's anything out there like it, so I am looking forward to sharing it, And, and then obviously I'll have a little checklist to go through so you can be reminded of what things to talk about in these conversations. So all of that's That's coming up and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm excited to continue to offer things to the community and, um, as well as law enforcement and the training that I do and the public speaking that I'm, um, also doing. So,
0: yeah.
2: So I did, I know that
1: we had chatted about, uh, you, you had spoke or you talked with a mom, a mom's group, um, Mm -hmm. And so we briefly kind of talked about that. Have you, have you talked with like a mom's group and a, a group of young kids or this age group of kids in combination and, and, you know, do you have that, that down to kind of talk to that age group or do you feel like it's only like an adult type conversation and then they take that and transfer it to the kids?
2: So as far as when I come and present, I... Uh, I'm at, I am still in undercover, even though I'm in a movie and here I am on a podcast and several podcasts, um, but it, it's also um, difficult to talk to youth about this. Uh, I totally feel parents, but when I present on this, I like to show a case study, you know, of like an actual 15 year old getting assaulted by hair trafficker. And it's kind of a little bit too much, I think. Um, but there are organizations like Red Light Rebellion here locally in Phoenix Okay. Um, that do, that's a married couple. They're super relatable. They're young, way younger than me. They're, you know, super young and they have an entire program of, you know, not just sex trafficking awareness, but teen violence and, you know, appropriate relationships. And I really, I love what they're doing and I would never want to take away from what they're doing because they're doing really good and they are in the schools. And so, um, and they're really, really well placed at the school. My Curriculum is more for you know older high school college, and parents mm-hmm. adults um, for you know the entire awareness portion of it I would say but there's also um, Rachel Thomas she is a survivor uh, of trafficking she was actually in college barely uh, in college and was recruited away under the ruse of a modeling situation and was trafficked um, and. Escaped her trafficking situation, and so she has an entire curriculum and an amazing website. Um, I think it's, it's um, anti-something, but she she does uh, um, a lot also as far as mm-hmm. on the east coast of the United States, as far as her trafficking awareness for parents and adults.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, and it's not That's just parents. Really I and mean, this, this, this—you could. I mean, I could see this being applicable to anyone. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, teachers, daycare providers, any, I mean, really any adult.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I presented to the nanny, a nanny organization and nice. yeah, I'm trying to get into obviously corporations to be a public speaker. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously I'm an informational speaker. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm going to tell you the truth and what's really happening. I'm not here to make you have a better day. Um, I'm here to tell you to stop if you're participating in this kind of activity, as far as the individuals in the room that might be um, at a conference that think what happens at the conference stays at the conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely trying to get involved in businesses, recognizing, you know, their responsibility to, uh, in in you know, educate employees, Um, we've got hotels now that are being sued by victims. So what's to say that a employer doesn't get sued when a sex buyer participates in purchasing an individual on their lunch hour, using the company's computers, Mm -hmm. you know, I can see those things happening. So, um, you know, educating your, your employees and then instilling some policies on, you know, zero tolerance. If you're arrested for this, even though it's a misdemeanor at this point, um, you know, you're fired. Don't be doing that. And certainly, you know, safeguards and computer programs and those kind of things on your computers at work to deter and, and prevent them from accessing these websites, all kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. um, trying to break into that game too. Okay. Gosh, well, we're super
1: excited to, um, have had you here with us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are, uh, we're excited to continue to share your message. I think that Lisa and I uh, would like to continue to try to share that message. I know, yes. like I said, we had talked about um, hoping to get together a large group of uh, parents or you know a moms group because I think that this is this is something that people need to hear. And mm-hmm. um, to your point, it's it's a it's educational. It's more than that. It's um necessary. It's not mm-hmm. motivational by any means. It's, this is, this is something that we should just go here in life and take it and teach it to our children. And um, we need to know that these things are real and they're happening around us. And we have the ability to safeguard our homes and safeguard our kids. And so we need to take those steps to be able to recognize and stop where we can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, again, I, I can't, tell you how um, how much I appreciate. we appreciate what you're doing. So uh, it's not an easy job. I couldn't no. do it. Um, I don't know how you've done it.
2: <laughs> but
1: yeah. um, we think that you're amazing. Uh, we're gonna continue to support this uh, always. Uh, always. Thank you again so much for being with us today.
0: Yeah, yes, we absolutely. appreciate you so much. Thanks
1: for um, all right yes, you're welcome. All right, everyone, we will um, be back on next week. We've got a lot of fun episodes coming up. um, So don't forget to follow us on all of our fun social media posts. Um, If you have any questions for us, don't hesitate. Reach out and um, we'll be back with you shortly. All right, everyone, have a good night. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.